Good morning, Redemption Church. My name is Drake, and I'm one of the pastors here. Uh, and so, as you already know, we are in 1 Corinthians 15 this morning. And so this, this chapter marks another kind of turning point in the book of 1 Corinthians. Because Paul's kind of been building up, in the last couple chapters, the power of the Spirit. He first started talking about spiritual gifts being evident in the church. After that, he talked about the topic of love, and now he's building up to the pinnacle moment of the Spirit in this letter, the moment that the Spirit raised Jesus from the grave. And so we're going to be spending a couple weeks unpacking this chapter, but before we go any further in this passage this morning, I want to start off with a question. And that question is, what describes you? And I'm not talking about some sort of description that you'd give at like a work event icebreaker, all right? I'm talking about the type of description that you have of yourself when you are alone with you, yourself, and your thoughts. What describes you? This is a question that we begin asking ourselves from a very young age. And this past week, I actually found a very credible source that speaks to that reality. That source was a memory box from my third grade classroom. I started flipping through the different projects, works of art, I might say, but one of the projects that I found was this one right here, a picture of me. On the front of it, it has a picture of third grade Drake, bowl cut, buck teeth and all. It's a beautiful sight to see. And on the back, we were to answer the question, what describes you, here is my description of myself. The most important thing about me is that I'm good at football. (laughs) I don't know if you know this, but third grade was a great year for me at recess. Four sentences, let's keep going. I like going to football games with my family. My baseball team got third place in the tournament. But the most important thing about me is that I'm good at football end it. Really trying to speak my NFL aspirations into existence there, but you can probably tell it didn't work out. But here's what I know from this project, and here's what I know about third grade Drake. I was already chasing after what would describe me. And that's true of my story, and I know that's true of your story as well. What describes What I've found from sitting across the table from many different people over the years is that a lot of times when a question like that is asked, the answer is not given in the most positive light. Like maybe the primary description that you have for yourself is that you are anxious or addicted, not enough, too far gone, wounded, a failure, abandoned, broken, awkward, a mistake, rejected. And if that is what describes you, how might you think that affects the way you live? And if that is you, I want you to know that there is such good news in the words on this page. Because Paul wants to remind you of something. Verse 1. 
Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received in which you stand and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. Paul knows that we're a forgetful people. He's saying, I'm coming to remind you of the gospel that I preached to you. I want to remind you of the good news of what Christ has done on your behalf that has changed your answer to the question, what describes you? That good news is explained in three different ways. It's what you received, it's in which you stand, and it's by which you are continually being saved. The gospel is what you received. There was a moment where the the beautiful story of God redeeming the world came into contact with your broken story and it changed everything. There was a moment when you heard a story about a cross that was carried, a lamb that was slain, a debt that was paid, a curtain that was torn, and a body that was buried, but we know the story doesn't end there. Because we know that there was a stone that was rolled, a promise sealed, a battle won, a king enthroned, and an eternity that is awaiting for you. Now because of Christ, you have a new answer to the question, what describes you? What describes you is that you are victorious, you are forgiven, you are loved, and you are redeemed. Those other words listed before are nowhere on that list. And that description is not something that you earned for yourself yesterday. And it's not something that you will earn for yourself tomorrow. That description was earned for you the moment the grave could no longer hold our king. That is what you received past tense, but something as beautiful as that is not something that you just hear once and walk away from. No, the gospel is also what you stand in. When everything else in life feels shaky, a relationship, a job, a test score, finances, when everything feels shaky around you, the gospel is the only constantly firm foundation that you can rest your life on. The gospel is where you stand. But it's more than that still. The gospel is the means by which you are being saved. The gospel is like a chisel in your life that is chipping away at every broken part of you to where the only end product is that you are going to look like Christ himself. And for some of you, the only thing you need to hear this morning is that God is not done with you yet. Though the sin feels real, though it's painful in that process of getting those things chipped away from your life, if only you could see what he's making you into. And then he uses the word if. If you hold fast to the word that I preached to you unless you believed it in vain. So when we see a sentence like that, I think we, we first ask ourselves, like, wait, I thought the gospel wasn't at all about what I do, but what Jesus did for me. And Paul would say, that is exactly right. It's not about what you do. It's what Jesus did on your behalf. But 
you holding on to the gospel is evidence that you believe what Jesus did for you. Just like you continuing to sit in your seat right now is evidence that you believe your seat can hold you. You're not doing any of the work. The seat's doing all the work. And so you holding fast to the gospel is not you doing the steps necessary for salvation, but you believing that the steps have already been accomplished for you. And so he's saying, hold on. Hold on to truth. Hold on to community that points you back to that truth. Hold on to the Bible that reminds you of that truth when everything else seems to be pulling you away. And Paul would say next, I want to point you to some evidence that proves to you that this is a worthy message to hold on to. Let's look at verse 3. For I delivered to you as of first importance that which I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that he was buried and that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. And that he appeared to Cephas and then to the twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. Paul would say, what I'm about to say to you is of first importance. Okay, there's been a lot of different things covered in this letter, but the gospel is on a tier of its own. The gospel is of first importance. And so what Paul does here, though, is interesting. Because I think Paul is known for a lot of his deep theology, but he doesn't go into this theological discussion about the resurrection. No, he just gives the facts and the evidence of the resurrection. Because if the resurrection happened, it changes everything. But this was a topic that was hard for Corinthians to believe. They were highly influenced by Greek philosophy at that time that believed that the body was kind of this, this broken, evil thing and the soul was what was beautiful. The body was just a prison for the soul that when you died, your soul would continue and your body would be done away with. And so the topic of your body raising from the grave was a stumbling block to them. If you look at Acts 17, when Paul is in Athens, right before he goes to Corinth, it was the resurrection of the body that caused them to mock him. So Paul lays out the facts. Christ died in accordance with the scriptures. He was buried. And he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. All these things scripture has pointed to and Christ raising from the dead proved to be the greatest I told you so ever in history. And this event that Paul just laid out is not lacking any evidence either. He said he appeared to Cephas. Then to the 12, then more than 500 people, way more people than you would ever need in any sort of court case to prove something happened. Then to James, then to all the apostles, then to me, all people who saw the resurrection take place or saw Jesus after he rose from the dead. All people who are now willing to die for the cause of Christ. 
all people who are willing to spread this message in the same city that crucified a man for the very same message just days before. Christianity breaks out from the very place that looked like it had crushed Christ. Tom Anderson, a former highly renowned lawyer, takes a little different angle on this. He says this, let's assume that the written accounts of his appearances to hundreds of people are false. I want to pose a question. With an event so well publicized, don't you think that it's reasonable that one historian, one eyewitness, one antagonist would record for all time that he had seen Christ's body? The silence of history is deafening when it comes to the testimony against the resurrection. Here's what Paul's laying out in this passage. Your faith is based on the fact that Jesus walked out of the grave. In the psychological world, there's a, a term used to speak to irrational thoughts that we have. It's called cognitive distortions. Pretty easy to break down what that word is. It's distorted ways of thinking. So one of those is all or nothing thinking. We only see the world in those two extremes. We don't see any gray in between. So it's always using the word always or never. I will always be like this. This will never change. Another cognitive distortion is jumping to conclusions. And I wanted to read a definition of what that one is. It's interpreting the meaning of a situation with little or no evidence. I'll read it one more time. Interpreting the meaning of a situation with little or no evidence. Here's what I know is true about myself. I am great at creating false evidence in my mind that stacks up against me and how I describe myself. Usually with the words what if or could be. Like that person could be thinking that about me. What if I'm not able to provide for my family? This not working out could be the end of me. What if things never get better? We jump to conclusions. We let those what-ifs and could-be's snowball in our mind when there is little to no evidence, but then we begin operating as if they are true. Do you ever do this? Because what we see in this passage when we look at the resurrection is that we in Christ don't operate off of what-if, what-ifs and could-be's. We operate off of what has already What has already happened in Christ walking out of the grave also speaks to what will happen for you one day. Because we know that the same spirit that rose Jesus from the grave dwells in you and is bringing life to your mortal bodies. There is significant evidence that points us to the factual event of Jesus leaving the grave behind and in that moment, sealed and determined what describes you. 
Next, Paul is going to give his answer to the question, what describes you? Let's look at verse 9. For I'm the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. Okay, so right here, Paul, he's not talking about this kind of made-up evidence in his mind that is stacking up against him like we do and I do all the time. No, he's, he's talking to real broken things in his past where he was leading the charge of persecuting the church, killing Christians, some real stuff that in every way could be what describes him. And I think for you as well, when you think of your story, there's some choices or moments that cause you to feel the brokenness of your past. Choices that you made that you thought you never would. Promises to be done with something that you keep going back to. Things from your past and things from your present maybe from this weekend, that weigh heavily on us and impact the way we choose to describe ourselves. And if that's you, I want you to lean into what Paul says next. 15 verse 10. But even though those things are true about me, Even though I led the charge in persecuting the church, here's what he says. By the grace of God, I am what I am. Paul takes this question of what describes you to a whole new level. Because it's not just what describes you, but who describes you. Who are you giving the right to describe who you are? Is it yourself? The same person that at one moment you're wrestling with your own brokenness? Is it someone else who has brokenness in their story as well? Or is it the one who rose from the grave and is now seated on the throne? One thing that Paul knew is that your description of you will never be more true than God's description of you. Your description of you will never be more true than God's description of you. Paul knew that the banner over his life, the banner over your life, is now victorious, forgiven, loved, and redeemed. And if that is going to be God's constant description of you, maybe we should start seeing ourselves through that lens instead of our own. And when that is the banner over your life, it is going to do something. Let's look at the second half of verse 10. And his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them. Though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. Paul is saying that the banner over my life now is victorious, forgiven, loved, and redeemed, and that displays the immeasurable riches of God's grace. And that grace was not pointless. 
that grace did something. This question of what describes you is asked often around the Upkiss household. Every night before I put Zeta down for bed, I ask her a couple questions. And I will do this with Hattie one day as well, but at two months of age, she's struggling to talk, so we'll get there. But I sit down with Zeta and I ask her some questions, and one of those is, Zeta, what describes you? And we walk through the same four answers. Precious, beautiful, valued, and loved. I want her to know that she's precious, that the God of the universe is the one responsible for wiring her the way she is, and he did not make a mistake. I want her to know that she is beautiful, both externally and internally, and even in the midst of sin and brokenness, there's a treasure within her called the image of God that he cannot wait to display to the world. I want her to know that she is valued, that she matters to me, she matters to mom, and she matters to God. I want her to know that she is loved, that we will love her no matter the list of good things she does or the list of bad things that she does. And even when we fall short of that promise, there's one that will always hold that promise to her. Why do I do that? Well, one thing is that I know that she's going to grow up one day and there's gonna be a lot of different peers or boys that have descriptions of her And if it falls short in any way of what I just said, she has been built up for years in what is true. Second thing. I know that how she describes herself is going to direct the way that she lives. That's true of her and that's true for you. How you describe yourself is going to direct the way that you live your life. And we see this to be true in being tempted towards sin, right? Because every temptation for sin doesn't just come with what you should do. It comes with a false description of who you are. You are alone. You lack value. You lack worth. Therefore, fill in the blank. And what we see here is that Paul's description directed his life. He says, I worked harder than anyone else. And this is not him saying this in some form of pride. He's saying the banner over my life is victorious, forgiven, loved, and redeemed. And that banner is a giant arrow that draws our eyes up to look at the incredible grace of our God. It's all about the grace that he's lavished on me, not what I have done. Paul knew that a banner like that was not designed to be kept in the storage room of our lives, but to be on display for all to see. So he said, I will work, I will toil, I will strive with everything in me to point as many people to Jesus as I can all by God's grace. So the Holy Spirit continued his work of bringing life from dead and dark places in the life of Paul. 
And so here's what we see from this passage. The evidence of the resurrection didn't end with the people on this page. The evidence continued. The evidence continued in the life of Paul as he went from killing Christians to dying for Christ. The evidence continued in the fact that there was even a church in Corinth that Paul was writing this letter to in such a broken city. The evidence continued throughout church history as the mission of Christ persevered throughout great opposition. And the evidence continues in this room. The evidence continues in this room for the stay-at-home mom who continues following Christ in the life of unnoticed faithfulness. The evidence continues for those of you who want so badly to be a mom, but you endure and you cling to Jesus and hold on to hope that you have in him while you wait. The evidence continues as you say no to fear in any circumstance because you know that God is with you always to the end of the age. The evidence continues as you love those in your life that this world say have no right to receive your love. The evidence continues as you invite someone into the goodness of knowing Jesus, no matter how hard that might be. And the evidence continues as some of you in this room might still feel like you are too far gone for Jesus, but you recognize when he came to die for all, that included you. The Holy Spirit continues his work of bringing life from dead and dark places. The evidence continues because those things only happen if Jesus first himself walked out of the grave. The evidence of the resurrection continues as we day after day come back to the new description that God has given us. And we find more and new ways to believe that wherever we're at. So Redemption Church, what describes you? I want you to know that you are victorious. That the battle has already been won for you when Jesus walked out of the grave. And there is nothing in this world that can take that victory from you. I want you to know that you are forgiven. Your sins from yesterday, today, and until your last day have been completely wiped away by the blood of Jesus. I want you to know that you're loved. That you are his son, you are his daughter in whom he is well pleased. And I want you to know that you're redeemed. That sin no longer has power over you because you were bought back with a great price. And these aren't just words that I'm sharing with you. This is the posture that your heavenly father has towards you right now. Victorious, forgiven, loved, redeemed. Let that direct our lives in such a way that shows we believe that to be true. All by his grace. Let me pray. Jesus, you're alive. 
This world did everything they could to stop your mission of saving us, but yet you walked out of the grave. Its best attempt to crush you only showed how amazing you are all the more. And Jesus, what we know is that we look back and see what you did in walking out of the grave, and now we see that you're inviting us to do the same. So that now what describes us is more like you, Jesus, and less like us. Father, that's how you see all of us right now. And to someone in here who feels like they're too far gone, that they can't take that step of being in relationship with you, I pray that they would see that when Jesus bled on that cross, when he said, it is finished, he meant it, and so that they are invited into your beautiful presence. For those that are struggling to remember that you are still holding on to them, I pray that they would see the way you look at them. And as we receive that grace, would we go out exalting your name in this city, that the evidence of you raising from the dead would continue in this city, and that there'd be more lives rising from the dead as well. All for your glory, Lord. So right now we want to stand and we want to worship you because you are worthy of our praise. In your name we pray.